This is The Sean Prue Show on Canada Talks, Sirius XM 167. Thought Revolution Radio underway all this next hour. You've got The Sean Prue Show here on Sirius XM Canada Talks, Channel 167. Glad you're with us. Happy weekend to you. Uh, one of my favorite things is coming up to do here on the show as an entrepreneur um, and, and knowing that entrepreneurs make up such a big portion of the economy here in Canada and the U.S. I love to have these successful entrepreneurs on to uh, share uh, their wisdom and their knowledge. And we're going to have the guy from My Pillow. Mike Lindell on second half of the show. Everybody knows who Mike Lindell is. I, I think I hear our first guest giggling in the background. <laughs> he probably knows who he is. Gabriel Navarro is joining us right now. Grab a cup of coffee and uh, listen to what he's got to say as we take you through the world of coffee. I think it's a misunderstood um, industry. I think it's a misunderstood plant. I think we only know it on a superficial level. And so we thought it would be fun today to have Gabriel on to uh, talk to us a little bit about um, the subject of coffee and give you things you don't know about it. Gabriel, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Why do you love coffee so much that you've become a guru? Um, I don't, I don't know if I can be called a guru yet, but, uh, I, I do enjoy coffee. I enjoy the, the flavors that come out of it, depending on, on the origin, depending on how it's roasted. So I got really interested in, 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 uh, in coffee. Thanks to all these profiles that I tried with, uh, with comparing Ethiopia with, uh, with Brazil, like it was just a, a bundle of flavors that, that caught my attention that it was just not your typical brown dark chocolate uh brew so which i think is, uh, is what people are used to yes yes you're right uh people are used to that uh, again there, there's a lot of uh education that that needs to be that needs to be done at least in canada that, that this is where i live right now um and uh yeah there, there there's need, there, there's a need for, for for some education if we want to bring all this this kind of this kind of coffees like experimental coffees and and single origins and all kind of stuff well we need to to share it with people well, I'm going to keep calling you a guru because um, you've consulted um, with various coffee shops on how to run coffee shops. You have taught others on how, how to make coffee. And I think if I say how to make coffee to anyone listening, they're going to be like, you put it in the filter and you pour water into the machine and you put the, the flask underneath the spout. <laughs> and that's how you make coffee. What, what, are, what are you teaching people um, that they didn't already know? Well, uh, there, there's there's several things to 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 be taught in general. Like uh, uh, me as a consultant, uh, well, sorry, when I was doing consultant uh, consultancy, um, it all depends. It, it depends if you need to do a pour over process, or it depends if you need to um, do some coffee in an espresso machine. Uh, there's certain recipes, there's certain ways of doing it, there's certain grinds that you need to use it to use. Sorry, um, so. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of uh, uh, learning. There's a lot of uh, training. Uh, it's repetition. So uh, you don't get good just because I tell you, hey, you need to do it this way, that way, that way. And so, when did you learn? Where did you learn all of these, all this knowledge about coffee that you're imparting onto others now? It started when I was living in Mexico City. I was uh, part of an ad agency, and this uh, ad agency gave me the task of uh, taking care of a roaster uh, based out of Italy. Long story short, we developed a relationship. He invited us to uh, Italy, and he made me a order process that's called Chemex. The Chemex is a drip process where uh, you have a glass, very nice glass, and you put a filter on top, uh, coffee, ground coffee, and then you start pouring water. To the to anyone's eye, it's very simple to to see that, but you're not considering the grind setting. You're not considering the time, the bloom. Are you letting the coffee breathe? Are you letting the coffee get get mixed? Um, and uh, when I tried it, it was just, it, it blew my mind. So it got me really interesting to the point that I left everything and I wanted a Korean coffee. I wanted to, to open my own coffee shop. Um, yes, go ahead. Uh, this is, this is, is an art then as well as a science, isn't it? Yeah, uh, it, it is an art. It's the art of, of making science. Like, at the end of the day, you use so much chemistry. You, you play with, with minerals, you play with water, with temperature, with grind settings, with oils. It's, it's, 
still today, even though I've been in this industry for close to 10 years, I can say that I don't know everything. And I, and I, and I'm, and I wish to know everything. I buy books, I talk to people. Um, but uh, it, it was, it was very interesting because it, to me, design was everything. Photography was everything. But that cup of coffee that this guy made me in Italy. <laughs> That's uh, some good coffee. It, it was great. That was, that was, that was close to 11, 12 years ago. And uh, I literally uh, sold my apartment, sold my home. Uh, wow. And I moved, uh, I moved to Kelowna, to BC. I'm kidding. I was born in Edmonton, but uh, my parents are Mexican. We've always lived in Mexico City. Um, we've traveled a lot, but I always wanted to come back home, back to Canada. And uh, I moved in with my girlfriend at the time now, my wife. We have four kids. And uh, we, um, we wanted to open a cafe. But Kelowna, BC at the time, they didn't have this, this knowledge in coffee where no one really was interested in coffee. So we decided to move to Toronto. And in uh, Toronto, I got hired by a uh, very small cafe in the middle of a uh, uh, design district. And they gave me an opportunity. And that's where I started learning. I realized that I didn't know how to open my own coffee shop. I just wanted to press a button. I had this dream of opening a cafe, of having um, people over and sharing coffee. But then I realized, oh, I need filtration, what? And I need a, what kind of espresso machine? And it's not just pressing a button, I have a scale. There were so many things that was not accounting. So I realized that there was a need uh, uh, for that. He won't call himself a coffee guru, but I'm calling Gabriel Navarro a coffee guru. And if you're just joining us, that's who we're talking to right now, learning all about coffee on the Sean Pru Show, Sirius XM Canada Talks, Channel 167. Gabriel, tell me uh, what the number one thing is people get wrong about coffee. Um, I will tell you about opening a cafe. The thing that a lot of people don't consider is that just because you have the most expensive and amazing espresso machine doesn't mean that you're going to be making a, making a great cup of coffee. You need to consider water filtration system and the beans that you're going to be selling. So I think that I know you asked me for one, but those two are the most important things that people don't, don't realize. Um, there's a point where some cafes will go on and buy the most expensive piece of equipment. And at the end of the day, you, you, you end up with no budget. So what and, have you learned? What have you learned teaching others how to run cafes? A lot, uh, Sean, to the point that now I really am interested in opening my own, my own venture. Um, I've learned how to, how to deal with people, how to negotiate certain things. Um, I had a friend of mine in the uh, uh, financial district explain to me how coffee moves around with stocks and how uh, coffee can influence other, other trades um, to the point that even talking to a roaster, talking to um, a, a green buyer, you, 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 have, you have power to, to say, you know what, I don't need this coffee because there's not a lot of trade in that. Uh, I think that we can buy this coffee because they're helping the farmers. Um, there's, there's so many things uh, to, to, to include, Sean, that we in Canada, at least we need to, to explore a little bit more. I have a question and I dedicate this question to everyone out there who spends a lot of money on coffee, especially specialty coffees. Why are specialty coffees so expensive? It goes, there, there, are, many, there are many answers, but the one that I'm going to give you is, is focus on, 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 on the farmers. Um, as an example, uh, a farm in Mexico, a farm that I'm actually friends with in Mexico, um, it goes like this. The, the farmers will sell it to uh, the town. The town will sell it to the state. The state will sell it to uh, Mexico City, Mexico City to the country. Uh, Mexico will sell it uh, to the broker. The broker will do another broker in Canada. Uh, Canada Customs gets involved. The broker gets it to the roaster. The roaster gets it uh, to the cafe. The, ca the cafe gets it to you. So there's a lot of hands involved. And the reason why they're doing that is not just, okay, we're going to go to this farm, drop everything up, and send it back. No, they take care of every single crop. I'm not kidding you. There, I've, I've read about some, some farms in Africa where they cover them, or even in, in Central America, they cover them with silk during the day, uh, wow. with, with silk sheets. And some of them take the photosynthesis, photosynthesis uh, uh, from the moon at night. That's extreme, Sean. That's super extreme. But it's, uh, it's uh, why not? Like, why not play with all this, all the scientific, scientific aspects that can give you a different profile in flavor? Um, it is expensive because um, the average um, coffee 
uh, space in, in, in Toronto. Um, I'm not saying that they do it exactly the same way, but most of the times they will just grab on farm, chop it all over, and send that inside a container. So they right. have buying power, right? Right. That you can buy, you know what, I, have a, I, can, I can negotiate because I'm buying your entire farm. Specialty coffee is expensive because we don't do that in general. We go cherry by cherry. And if this is not right, we go to the next one. So the coffee that you're getting is, is quality coffee. It's coffee mm. that is ready to be peeled, washed, sent, roasted, brewed, and drink. Well, I bet you you're going to be serving some quality coffee at your new location. You're making your dream come, in, come true. I think December 1st, you're opening your own cafe finally. We've got about uh, two minutes left, I just found out, from uh, our producer. Why don't you tell us about that? Um, yes, uh, we, um, uh, we're partnering with a few people, and uh, I decided that uh, we're going to bite the bullet. Yes, I'm going to open my own, my own cafe. Um, uh, it's going to be called... Uh, bite Nova the Social. bullet. Yes, absolutely. The reason why we're buying the bullet is because uh, we're buying a little bit of, of more expensive, more quality coffee. Um, there's a lot of people in, in, in the world in general that are afraid to uh, sell the most expensive coffee. The goal here is not necessarily to sell the most expensive coffee, but to sell quality coffee. Why am I selling this? You can go to, to any cafe to get coffee. Why coming to us? We want to wanna be able to educate our customers, to let them know this is what's happening in the world, this is what's happening with the other farms, and this is what we're doing to support them. Because at the end of the day, just by taking a picture and, and, and posting on Instagram doesn't mean that you're supporting the farm. No. Supporting the farm and supporting the country and supporting your own country here in Canada is to, to, to make sure that everyone is treated with respect, treated, treated fairly. And uh, we followed down, down the, the, the rabbit hole like, to see people making sure that they, they're, they're, they're being taken care of. So we have a very close relationship with a few roasters, um, like Hatch Coffee Roasters, like Java Coffee Roasters, just to mention some of them here in Canada that we're going to be working with, um, that we know where the coffee's coming from. We know the farmers. We know the families of the farmers. We know how much you're selling it for. So, and, and tell us, the, I, cut, I think I cut you off. Tell us the name of, of the cafe again. Oh, Nava Social. Nava Social. And where is it going to be located for the people? Uh, the first Toronto? location, uh, it's going to be on uh, King and River. Um, it's in the. It's going to be in the East End, just before the, the, the Don Valley Park, the, the WP. And uh, yeah, if you're around in Toronto, come to, come to the I'll East I'll come by. Gabriel, thank you for expanding our knowledge on one of the world's most favorite beverages. Wishing you good luck with your uh, new enterprise coming at uh, the top of December. And thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Sean. I really You're most welcome. It. You're most welcome. Hey, we're going to get some entrepreneurial advice from the pillow guy a little later on in the show. You've got the Sean Proust Show here on Sirius XM Canada Talks, Channel 167. We're glad you're here. The Sean Prue Show on Canada Talks, Sirius XM 167. Welcome back to the Sean Prue Show. You're wisely listening to Canada Talks Channel 167. And you can hear this show or any of your other Canada Talks favorites anytime on the Sirius XM app, FYI. In just a few minutes, some wisdom for entrepreneurs and addicts from one of America's most seen entrepreneurs. His ads are everywhere and have even been parodied on the likes of Saturday Night Live. He went from crackhead to CEO. But first, I want to share with you this SPS flashback. It takes us back to Berlin when I was last there a summer and a half ago. Remember travel? <laughs> where I chatted with my friend, the Luxembourg-based political journalist, Eric Hamus, who shared the story of making his dream for, of hiking the Appalachian Trail come true. I think in this time of global pandemics and lockdowns and COVID exhaustion, our dreams for ourselves may have taken a back seat. May this serve as a reminder that it's still important to have them and to keep them alive. Their time will come. Let's go to Berlin. No, really, I'd love to go to Berlin. I'd, I'd go anywhere. I'd go to the next town over if I could. Anyway, here's the piece. That's the uh, screeching friggin', as my friend yeah. Eric Hamuz calls it, train uh, going through here on a Saturday morning stroll here in Berlin. My colleague is a journalist in Luxembourg, and he writes about Donald Trump a lot. And as we take this morning stroll through a beautiful city, uh, and I ask you about your decision to hike as much of the Appalachian Trail as you could hike 
what drove that? Your love of walking as we are now or uh, getting away from Trump? <laughs> well, it's funny that you mentioned Trump because it's actually true. It's uh, uh, not really getting away from, from Trump because, I mean, I went towards Trump since I'm from Europe. And walking the Appalachian Trail means being closer to Trump itself. But uh, uh, no, I got a little tired and I think we're, yeah, I got a little tired of all the fake news. Uh, yeah, well, not the fake news as as itself, but the, the people complaining about fake news. And, and, and I do realize that a lot of my journalist colleagues also don't take news as serious anymore as it used to be. So I kind of got tired of it all, and I needed a break. And uh, the French have a technical term to call it a recalibration, a personal recalibration, which I actually like because it really describes well what I was aiming to do. Well, and we live in, in an era of um, understanding that self-care is paramount, regardless of what you do for a living, regardless of what's going on in our political climate or in your personal life, if you are not taking care of yourself first. And sometimes it takes a big way. And, and you, as I mentioned in my intro, uh, the Appalachian Trail often takes people five to seven months to complete. Uh, it, is, it is not easy. It costs about $1,000 a month on average. So did you take a... Where's the beginning? People are listening to this and they're like, God, I'd love to do something like that for myself. I've never done something like that. I've run a marathon once. And people have asked me what I'm asking. Where's the beginning? What do you do? Because we all look at the finish line and it can be daunting. How did you overcome that? You decide. You just decide to do it. I think you have to, to commit to it. That's what I found. Uh, most of the people I met on the Appalachian Trail, or the Appalachian Trail, as this, the people from the American South uh, like to call it. Or the AT, I understand. Oh, yeah, that's AT lingo, the AT, yeah. exactly. Most of the people I met on the AT, um, they were all looking for something, searching for something, or running away from something in just some form or shape. And... Uh, uh, the same for me. I always used uh, used to like hiking and backpacking, even as a Boy Scout. And uh, I've been at a crossroads five years ago in my life, uh, just working a lot, uh, breaking up with a girlfriend, like your usual kind of crossroads. I mean, just being overworked and, and just finding yourself alone all, all of a sudden and without any other... Uh, uh, thing to do than work and I remembered that I like to hike a lot and so I just started hiking again and pretty much immediately I I knew about the AT somehow I don't know where I, I got to know about it but it was in the back of my man, mind and pretty much from the beginning I was set to uh, on, on hiking the AT so at first I decided I'm gonna do this next week like I'm, I'm that kind of guy usually I want to do it like now I'm very <laughs> very impatient but then uh, my friends and my family actually talked some sense into me. They said, Eric, you haven't hiked in, what, 10 years, 15 years? Maybe you start with a small thing because the AT is 2,200 miles. I mean, those well-meaning people who love you and want the best for okay, you well. will always try and talk some sense into you so that you don't stretch outside your comfort zone. And like I said, well-meaning people. Did you, I was about to say um, to you, um, I mentioned a marathon before for myself, my brother at the time, my youngest brother, uh, it was in the Guinness Book, <clears throat> excuse me, of world records uh, for having done something uh, running related. And my other brother was uh, uh, Ontario's top, in the top five in his running category. So, you know, quite elite. And I, I at best, was a... Um, Occasional. Well, I, I ran regularly. I loved running, but I, I was not competitive. And they w were not well-meaning. They were more like, you're never going to do this marathon of yours. When people were telling you what you heard, did that not infuse you with kind, as it did me, with a kind of, well, I'm going to friggin' show you well, of them. Of course, of course. Yeah. Uh, I gotta say that most of my close friends, uh, they know that if I got my mind set on something that I'm gonna do it. Uh, honestly, and surprisingly, because Luxembourg is a very uh, 
it's a small place. Everyone knows everyone, and there's a lot of envy and jealousy going around. But surprisingly, a, a small amount of people actually tried to talk me out of it. Of course. Well, uh, let me let me interject. Luxembourg, uh, not exactly uh, the neighbor of the Appalachian Trail. Uh, it's thousands of kilometers away. Why didn't you choose something in France, or why didn't you go on, go through hiking through Ireland or something? Well, I did that. Not Ireland, but I did Scotland. I did a few hikes in France. Been there, done that. <laughs> the Tour du Mont Blanc, but the Appalachian Trail. Uh, America has a few long-distance trails, uh, and it's not only the trail, but also they have a a lore coming with it or a culture and uh, I always felt attracted to the uh, hiker community in America and the backpacking community uh, just uh, from hiking in America and from uh, watching YouTube videos and, and things like that and I just felt attracted by the whole uh, the whole atmos atmosphere of it and, and it was uh, yeah. Where did you begin and where did you end and what did you learn about yourself along the way? I began in Georgia, uh, Amicola State Park, uh, Springer Mountain, that's the northern terminus of the Appalachian Trail. And I did end somewhere around Roanoke, Virginia, after 730 miles due to an injury. And uh, How many miles? 730. Jeez, that's, I mean, I hope that that, that alone is an accomplishment to, that, that's a notch on your belt to me, that is bragging rights forever. <laughs> To put up your hand if you're listening right now and you've hiked how many miles? 730. 730, if you've ever hiked that many miles. Exactly. Uh, well, Not I, as far as you wanted to go, I can tell on your face. No, it wasn't as far as I wanted to go. But to be honest, I was uh, still very satisfied with myself. Indeed. If I would have had to stop after a week, I would have been bumped. But this is still good enough. I mean, I, I hiked 500 miles with an injury. I went on and off. A lot of my friends on trail uh, thought I was off for good at least two or three times. But I always came back. But then at some point, I just realized, okay... Uh, I actually got what I came for, and uh, it's not about making it to the end. Of course, that'd be a great bonus and more bragging rights, but to me it was more about just freedom, actually. I, I'm not sure. A lot of people think that you do something like that to search for something or search for your inner self, which I kind of did, but I just wanted to have the freedom for a few months at a time. Uh, just to do whatever I want. Um, I like who I become on trail. I just like who I become on trail. I'm a very happy-go-lucky guy out uh, out there, and uh, uh, I, I socialize with everyone, and I'm in a good mood. And I just wanted to give that guy more time to develop and more time to uh, to live than just the week-long hikes I'd done before. And after three months, I could tell that, yeah, okay, there's, there's the guy I, I want to be for a little while now. And I think he's going to stick around for a little bit. And that's what I was looking for, and that's what I found. You know, we talk about this sort of thing on the show all the time, and I call it alignment. You sort of catch up with who you really are when you uh, do something that makes you joyful. And, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on, Eric, and why we have guests like you on, because there's so many of us, myself included, who get bogged down in the nitty-gritty stuff, the stuff that if I'm lying on my deathbed tomorrow, I will not give a rat's ass about. And we get bogged down, the fake news, you write, you're a political journalist, you're talking about Trump all the time, um, you're in a, a place where you say the neighbors all know each other's business, it's a heavy, it's a heavy kind of um, life, and, and we all lead a version of that. And I think it's, it's, um, it's imperative that we remember who we are, and we let that little, the little boy out, or that little girl out, or that little person out, who I may interject. Yeah. Just no, you may not. Yes, you may. <laughs> just make a take a decision, make a decision, and stick to it. It's a lot of people told me it was it said that oh, I wish I could do something like that. You can. You, you can. can. Okay, I'm I'm in a in a good position that I don't have kids I have to look after or wife, uh, but I'm an only child. I still have my parents to look right. after, um, but. You just, yeah, well, just do it. It's, that's, that's all I can tell your listeners. Just, if you want to do something like that, 
set your aim to it, walk, work to towards it, and just make it happen, because otherwise it will not come to you. You have to go to it. That, that is um, amazing advice. And, and you know, if, you, if you've been a long-term listener of this show, you know we do Summer of Yes here every summer on the Sean Prue Show. We say yes to the invitations, the inspirations, the ideas. We say yes all summer long and for, for, for me that has changed my life and what, what I hear you say is just say yes to the idea and it doesn't have to be summertime, it can be any time. Sure, yeah, it can be any time. Just do whatever, not do whatever you want to do, but just do what makes you happy and try to limit negativity as much as you can. I mean, there's so much negativity around. And I'm not, act, I'm really not the metaphysical guy talking about chakras and, and, and karma. That's my job. <laughs> right, but um, yeah, just uh, limit negativity. That's all I can say. And, do what makes you happy. And, it, and what makes you happy might be taking a cooking class, it might be painting, it might be, be reading that book. It does not have to be the Appalachian Trail. Eric, I thank you so much for your time. What's your next endeavor? What's your next happy place? Um, I think my next happy place is just uh, trying to thrive as a freelance journalist now for a little while. Uh, building up a brand, maybe. and. Uh, because I like to work, I don't, don't get me wrong, I do like to work as well. And then, who knows, there's going to be an next trail, there's going to be an Appalachian Trail again. Uh, but, yeah, I'm not, too, I'm not too worried. More Sean Prue Show on the way. Our next guest has advice for entrepreneurs and addicts because he's gone from crackhead to CEO and he knows a thing or two. You're listening to the Sean Prue Show on SiriusXM Canada Talks Channel 167, which makes you very wise indeed. Glad you're here. Welcome back to the Sean Prue Show on Canada Talks, Sirius XM 167. Here's Sean Prue. Welcome back. You've got the Sean Prue Show here on Sirius XM Canada Talks, Channel 167. My next guest is an entrepreneur with lots to teach us and a fascinating story. He couldn't sleep well for a long time and he blamed it on his pillow and he set out to make a better pillow and now he is ubiquitous mike lindell is seen everywhere recently parodied actually in the new sarah cooper movie everything is fine but you see his commercials everywhere you've heard him on the radio everywhere he's a genuine uh, success story and mike i want to welcome you to the show to share some of the knowledge and wisdom and your story with us how are you today i'm doing great thanks for having me on guys so one of the things I know about um, your story is that you faced rejection right off the bat. You had designed what you thought was the perfect pillow and kind of went into department stores expecting them to carry it. And everyone said no. And I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show. We do a lot of the entrepreneurial um, um, uh, industry makes up so much of the backbone of economies. Um, what kept you going a lot of people would have said okay screw it well you know i put, i want to go back a little bit i've always been an entrepreneur and i want to tell any entrepreneur out there a, a problem solution like my sister flooded a back in the uh, early 80s she flooded a three stars like a five-story uh, apartment building she popped a water bed and it flooded the building and i became a carpet cleaner and uh and, uh, and then I, I had another business, this lunch wagon business. But so I've always been an entrepreneur, and I and uh, I learned from each thing, from each uh, thing, and not to give up. And you're going to get things that you face. But the my pillow was a big thing. Where I worked on it a year and a half, and when I finally had the, um, you know, the pillow, I was completely broke. And and you're right. I went into the department stores. I went in there, and and um, and. And said, hey, I got the best pillow ever. How many you want? Where's your buyer? Where's your buyer? And I'm so excited. Um, you need to leave now, you know. <laughs> like, uh, and all this shut out. And then someone said, well, Mike, why don't you do a kiosk? I said, how do you spell that? <laughs> and I, I didn't know what a kiosk was. And I ended up doing a kiosk. But <clears throat> one of the things there is I... You know, I was all in, but the kiosk failed in the in the part that I couldn't. 
I come from another whole other story of a, a life of addiction and uh, and uh, rejection where where I was fear of rejection. Well, I didn't I couldn't talk to people. So when I did the kiosk, I only was there like one day. My wife at the time did most of the days, and and I you know I just was uncomfortable talking to people in sales. And they and uh, but the one day this guy came up to me. He says uh, he says he bought a pillow and he said, you have a business card? I said, no, no, I'm all out, but here you go. I write my name on a piece of paper. Now he happened to call that January and said, uh, you're the guy that invented this pillow. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, it changed my life. And I, I run the Minneapolis home and garden show. Would you like a spot in there? And I, and I had, by that time I had nothing left, nothing. And, but I, I knew I had something that worked and, and because I had heard from me, I'd given out, you know, the ones I had sold and I'd given out some to a lot of people and, and it solved a problem and I didn't, and I didn't give up. Well, I got to that show and I changed my booth and stuff. And the people, the people that came up that day, um, I had a table in between me and them and I was able to sell anybody that sells products. That's the best way in the trenches, they call them in the show. So you're hearing right from your customers. Well, the next day, the ones that had bought, they came back the next day, got back into the show, and they came up, you know, they're coming up to me, this pillow changed my life, it changed my life. And, and it wasn't even about the money, it made me feel so good about myself. And that right there, it's like I got hooked on that, of helping people. It was like, you know, from that point on, every, you know, every single person, it helped, the, it helped them like it helped me. And I think if... Uh, um, I just thrived off that. I just couldn't get enough of it of, of helping people and uh, and it, all the all the things that happened and the the blocks and the and uh, the betrayal, everything else that happened in my story with uh, the my pillow. I just never gave up because I you know I wanted uh, um, it wasn't about the money, but it was about uh, of course I needed the money, but it was uh, I just felt that I had something that could help everybody. You talk about being fully invested and, and having no money, but knowing that this um, pillow would help people. To what degree does an entrepreneur have to know that what they're doing um, is the most important thing in the world, uh, as, as this was for you? Is, can you well, be an entrepreneur think, and not, not believe in it that way? You have to. To me, every successful entrepreneur I've seen, whether it's in a service business or an invention or product, you better believe in it. If you don't believe in it yourself, I get approached all the time by people. Hey, I got this great idea. I'm going, well, really have you, you know, or, or I have this product and going, they didn't even, they don't even use it themselves. I mean, I just, it it blows my mind that they, you know, on people like that because they're destined to fail. They're in, I always set it up problem solution. I've created or invented a lot of products now and it's problem solution. And then I worry about the price points and stuff. You know, I wanted to solve, like with my pillow, it wasn't just uh, good sleep or whatever. I wanted to solve every single thing. If you went down this in the streets and said, what would you like in a pillow? Well, I'd like one I could adjust uh, for any sleep position. Well, I like one that stays cool. Here it is. I like one that's, um, you know, 100% made in the USA or made in Canada. By the way, I have a factory in Canada too. But, uh, you know, I want, you know, uh, I want one the last 10 years. Here it is. I want one you can wash and dry. Here it is. So if you take away all the little micro problems and have the answers, you, uh, you end up with a, uh, an amazing product. And, and my pillow, Grant, when it was first came out, it was like $79. And pillows were perceived at like $10. But right. it solved so many problems. And in the end, with the value of the 10-year, you could wash and dry. But it actually worked. There's no, there's nothing, if something lasts 10 years and you, you know, if it doesn't work, who cares? But I'd say any entrepreneur, you need to be passionate about what you're doing and believe in what you're doing, because you're going to, if you don't, you're going to have, you're going to have blocks and all this, and you got to be able to have the, the faith and the, uh, and the um, passion to get through it. Do you believe they have to sacrifice having a normal life too? Because at one point you were, I believe, living on your sister's couch, sleeping on your sister's couch. You didn't even oh, have ab- your own space. Right. And a- absolutely. I mean, it's a, um, it's a sacrifice, but you know, the, um, it's the reward way. If you fail, you know, you try it again. I was, you know, I had, like I say, all these different businesses and, and things in my life that I tried, but they were successful all in their own way. 
but they also had failures and you learn from you learn from your deviations if you know if this is if this works out and this doesn't work out or this changes and um i just think you have to uh um you know learn if something doesn't go right and uh and learn from it and then you know i made mistakes i made a lot of mistakes um you know the uh in this day and age if you have a um, I didn't have a lawyer. That's a late, that's the last thing. When I do I have contracts, some of the best contracts I ever had were a handshake deal, but it also, uh, um, you know, taken advantage of, and you end up in, you know, like I say, you said I lived in my sister's basement for quite quite a, quite a while. I mean, my when my first infomercial came out, the night before we were filming it, and the guy said, that guy, you know, I told my friends and family, let's all pool our money. Nobody will take my pillow. No box stores. Let's pool our money and we're going to have the biggest infomercial in history. Well, I didn't know infomercials didn't work. Nobody told me that. They're just to go into box stores, which already said no. I remember we all pooled our money and everything. And and uh, the night before we were filming, the, this producer, uh, um, we were doing our reads. He said, this is the worst guy I've ever seen. He'll never make it on TV. <laughs> and then, like you say, I'm, 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 it, it, that infomercial aired October 7, 2011. I was living in my sister's basement. I didn't have anything left, but I still had, you know, kept the faith and I had failed many different things had failed. Well, when that aired, uh, I went from 10 employees to 540 days. It just exploded. And you can't imagine the reward when it's something you have yourself or own yourself or, you know, you've done all the work. And but it's a it is a special person there because there are a lot of sacrifices for um, long hours and uh, um, it's not like oh oh you're making all this money I still work to this day all the time you know and uh, but I love what I do that's the difference of it you know I love what I do you know what do you what do you have to say about the peanut gallery the naysayers who probably told you along the way to stop this <laughs> foolish dream. And, and, and I, I don't know an entrepreneur, myself included, who hasn't been told by well-meaning people that they should just stick to the nine-to-five job and, and safety and security. What did you say to those people and what do you say to entrepreneurs listening now? Well, I've had that all my life and you're going you're gonna to hear that. Um, back when I invented my pillow, even my friends, you know, I was also an addict. I was a crack cocaine addict. And uh, when I went to invent my pillow, I said, I'm going to invent this pillow. I, um, it's going to... It's going to be adjustable. It's going to do all this. And, and my friends are going, you know, what do you want, crack? And I'm going, you know, <laughs> yeah, I was at the time, you know. But, but, uh, but uh, you know, all that aside, I, um, there were so many naysayers. It didn't matter what it was, too, because what other people that don't have that entrepreneur drive or aren't, you know, I believe it's something you really have to have and, and want to do, like you say, with passion, because they won't think outside the box. Those kind of people, they go, oh, you're going to change a paradigm in an industry? Try doing that once. They're going, it'll never work. It'll never, you know. I get so tired of that. Um, I actually do a little speech on it. Back in, in there was, uh, when I was a kid, we had the show Gilligan's Island. And, I remember that. And I always do this. Um, and, you know, I get these naysayers in a, in a room and they'll go, don't tell me it can't be done. I said, there's an episode of Gilligan's Island where he's up flying above the palm trees with these big feathers and he, and he's flying just fine. The skipper goes, Gilligan, get down here. You can't fly. And he goes, I can't. And he crashed to the earth. Exactly. Well, the, the story there that is he was flying, just fine till somebody told him he couldn't do it. And, you know, and, and this happens all the time where people give up because people, and then they get, and then the ones that really get jealous or what, or, you know, they're going, you can't do that. You can't, it even gets worse, you know, um, when I did my first ad, it was a print ad in the papers, and it was just some geek, me holding a pillow, right, and saying, yeah, I'm, you know, just like you, I had problems sleeping, and I write this ad, and I put it out there, this is in early 2010, and, or 2011, and it started coming out, and I started doing, like, if it cost me $1,000, I was bringing in $2,000, and this was the spring of 2011, and all these PR companies from New York and stuff called it did you write this ad? This is horrible. You need us. We got, you know, we're going to brand you. I go, I don't have time to brand. I need to make money on this thing directly, this return on my investment. Right. And, but you really do it. So, and I say to the naysayers, I said, it's 
it's a good thing that you have entrepreneurs all over the world that will take chances, will go out there and don't listen to those people, or we wouldn't be anywhere with, uh, um, with innovation and uh, invention and, and um, you know, capitalism, everything. We're going to take a break right now. My special guest this episode is the MyPillow guy, Mike Lindell, sharing his wisdom and knowledge from being an entrepreneur of great success. We're going to be back in just a minute. I'm glad you're here. You're listening to The Sean Prue Show with Sean Prue on Canada Talks, Sirius XM 167. Welcome back. Happy weekend. You've got The Sean Prue Show here on Sirius XM Canada Talks, Channel 167. So glad you're with us. So glad this guy's with us. Mike Lindell is the CEO of MyPillow. You've seen him everywhere. You've heard him everywhere. And he's been sharing the unique uh, lessons and wisdoms from his uh, very... Uh, powerful success story with us this last uh, segment. If you missed that, you can go to SiriusXM On Demand and listen to it anytime, or we podcast the show over at SeanPrue.com. You can go there as well. Mike, welcome back. You wrote a book called What Are the Odds? From Crack Addict to CEO. A lot of people um, now know from this book that you um, were uh, a very active crack addict. And, and as you were sharing with us off air, um, you were so shy with people that you needed to be high to deal with them when you were first trying to sell your pillow. When did your use begin? Well, my journey starts, you know, uh, when I was a kid, in, and this is in the late night, like 1969, I believe, my parents divorced back when divorces were common. And I was, uh, you know, the oldest sibling, but I was uh, seven years old at the time. And I got put into a new school where I was the only kid from a broken family. And I look at addiction and I say, you know, all, everything goes back to childhood and trauma and th fatherlessness. I mean, I, I've, right now, I mean, that's my passion. I've studied, you know, studied it and everything else. Well, here, when that happened, I'm put into this new school and I don't know anybody. And and that kind of manifested into, I wouldn't either talk to people, you know, you don't get rejected if you don't talk to people. Right. Or I would show up, I'd say, hey, watch me climb out this bus window, a moving bus window and jump. And, and all these things that happened to me, I remember getting to my five-year reu class reunion and, and everyone's talking about, yes, I've, I've um, finished college and they've started families and they're in a career, they're basically in a career where they've been at their same job and they've moved up and, I had quit my quit um, college on the first quarter, dropped out, and I was working at a drive-in movie theater and a and a grocery store, and I got fired at the grocery store. So basically, you know, I'm not where I should have been in my life, and I'm and but I took over that class reunion. And I started telling them about all the things that happened to me. That the mafia, I owed them uh, twenty thousand dollars back then. You know, that's a lot of money for football bets. Right? You know, for illegal football, they came to my house to break my arms. You know. Or I was driving, a, going down skydiving, and I crashed my motorcycle, got back up and went down there, and my parachute didn't open. You know, and I'm telling them these, and they're all true stories, but I got home, and everyone's going, wow, wow. Well, that was my inside, my, the only self-worth I had. Well, I got home that night, and I laid in bed, and I'm going, I felt so empty and so inside that I wanted what they had. It wasn't, you know, I wanted something I didn't have, and I felt I wasn't where I could be in life. And uh, I remember that deep sadness. Well, then I got introduced to cocaine in the early 80s. Well, then I could talk to anyone. I could, this, this fear of rejection and, and this false courage and all this stuff would be hidden down there because I got, uh, you know, because I could mask it with this drug. Well, then God handed me a, on a silver platter. What I longed for was a, a white, it was like the white picket fence. I was a very functioning addict. I think people, people nowadays, they perceive addicts as all oh, people in the street, homeless or whatever. No, that's not true. I don't care how, how many forks you eat with, from zero to four forks, addiction is widespread, okay? And it manifests from wounds that I'm not good enough, the devil's lie, I'm not good enough, or I'm not worthy, I don't fit in. And these things, I had 20-year 20 20 year marriage then, raised uh, four kids, and, and, but very, and actually had a bar. I, I had a bar <laughs> for 13 years. And not a good place for an addict, right? But, but they, um, you know, and then the pillow came up after I sold the bar and 
And then in the early 2000s, it turned to crack cocaine, which, um, you know, it's a different than cocaine. It's a different drug altogether, and people don't realize that. But that one's, it, it's almost impossible to function on it. And by the grace of God, I had these two tracks where I invented my pillow. And, um, you know, then I ended up losing the 20-year marriage. And, and you read this book. You read this book, and it's not, it's a PG-13 book. I didn't write it with all these, oh, you think of an addict with a bunch of swear words, whatever. It's a book that tells, I wanted people to, when they read the book, it would help everyone, not just people in addiction or the entrepreneurs. It's, you know, you know to me, my, my story is just, uh, with God, all things are possible on steroids. You know, here's a guy from a crack addict now running around with, uh, um, you know, the president of the United States or, you know, or having this huge platform that everybody knows him. And I'm going, you know, for me, it's like living two different movies. But I wanted you to read the book and really realize what I felt and how I went through and, and we, almost like living inside of a movie. And, you know, as we built up through the, or through the 2000s, it got to the point I had lost, even my drug dealers did an intervention. And I was downtown wow. Minneapolis and, and, you know, and I'm going to backtrack a little bit. So when I was turned down everywhere for my pillow and I started doing home shows and fairs, I did them throughout the Midwest and throughout Canada, both countries where, you know, I'm up there selling the pillow, but I would never, I would keep it separate from my addictions. And that was, you know, very, that was a lot of work. People say to me all the time, they go, Mike, how do you, you know, he works so hard now or whatever. And I go, no, I don't. This isn't work. Addiction was hard work, you know, but back when I, that drug dealer intervention, it's quite a story. They, I came out of the room and I've been up for almost 14 days in Minneapolis and I came out of the room and all three of them are standing there and go, uh, we're cutting you off. You've been up for 14 days. And, and uh, I said, what is this an intervention? They said, call it whatever you want, Mike. Well, two of them left and the other guy finally fell asleep at two 30 in the morning. I was out of crack. I'm on the floor trying to pick up, pick, you know, they call it carpet farming and scraping the pipe. I head down to the streets of Minneapolis. I couldn't get crack anywhere. Nobody would say there's addicts all over the street and dealers. No, the word had got out not to sell me any. And I got back upstairs and that guy's standing up. He goes, how'd that work out for you? And I was so mad. He goes, he goes, man, you've been telling us for years that this, uh, pillow is just a platform for God and you're going to come back someday and help us all out of addiction. And we're not going to let you die on us because I would prophesy someday. I would tell those guys I'm going to quit someday and come back and help them all. Two of them work for me. Now they're born again, Christians and the other, and I've had this huge network called the Lindell recovery network, which is going to help millions of people in both countries come, you know, get out of addiction because there's, I'll tell you one thing, there's nothing that knows more about addiction than ex addicts. So you got your, you know, you know, it's, it's, I call them hope matches. You know, I had a friend of mine that came to me late 2008 and he came to me and he, he was my equal. We had both started cocaine at the same time, both started, both turned to crack at the same time. And, and he had found, uh, found the, found God like four years earlier. And he came popping in. I go, Dick, I said, uh, what are you doing here? He said, the Lord led me here. And I asked him, I said, how did you, uh, I said, Dick, is it boring? He said, no, man, it ain't boring. And when you hear it from your peers, a way to get through, I mean, that's the answer, you know. Would you have done anything differently looking back? I wouldn't do anything. That's the thing, too. If, if there's addicts out there, that's never too late. And I'll tell you what, I would not change a thing in my life if I wasn't, if it would change where I'm at right now. And I think people look back and they see stuff so devastating or so are going, oh, this, you know, this is terrible. This happened. But then you look back, you know, years later, you go, wow, that had to happen to get to where I am now. And I think people, you know, um, prayer and get, you know, pray, get faith, getting through something. But you just got to, you know, to me, there's pillars, there's things that change that happen in our life. And you look back, these pegs, these different pegs, and you look back, and, wow, that had to happen. And this had to happen, or this couldn't have happened. And you know, one of the things that uh, I'll tell you real quick with my pillow, um, I took in when I got so big so fast on that infomercial, when I went from five employees to 540 days, I took in $100 million over the next six months. They told me, they laughed, said it couldn't be done. Well, I had made mistakes, like you wouldn't believe at the end of that, I was $6 million in debt. $6 million in debt. I'm sitting in my sister's basement, still sitting there. 
a guy comes on TV that copied me with my blue shirt and cross, and I'm six million in debt, and I go, what did I do wrong? Well, I trusted people. I didn't make good deals with, uh, you know, these people that were, everything was kind of um, um, farmed out to different um, different companies, like, okay, the media buys, and they, and I trusted, is this the best deal you can do? It would be on, on the shipping companies, and even on the patented phone. Well, I didn't know, you know, but I'll tell you what, then I pulled it all back in-house, and I learned from those mistakes. If those, if 2012 hadn't happened, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. Even though at the time, here I'm sitting in my sister's basement going, I got to work the rest of my life for nothing. And, and, but then I picked up my feet and I said, okay, you know, what can I do to get to straight, you know, to learn from this? And I did. And it, uh, it took, um, you know, and we've sold 50 million pillows now, 50 million my wow. pillows. What do you say to, you know, it's impossible for where this show is heard across North America, people who are listening to this are addicted. What do you say? What is your greatest piece of wisdom or advice for the addict listening right now? Well, there's it's two, it's two things. One is we all know in this in the times we're living in, they have drugs out there now that you just die from. I mean, you know, you're dying from heroin overdose and all this. We all know somebody that's died or and or that this has happened to. But we also know someone that's made it through. You know, everybody sees me on TV. I'm very outspoken about it. But we also know if you're an if you're an addict out there, I don't care who you are or how old you are. You know someone or the family knows someone else that's made it through. And you go find, that's your hope match. And you see how he, he made it. That guy encourages them how they make it. You're going to find out 99.99% of the time it was God. It was Jesus. And they went to a faith-based treatment center, most of them. All the faith-based, your Teen Challenge, Union Gospel, Salvation Army. These have an 80% plus success rate where your secular centers are 5% or below. I mean, it's, it's a huge difference. It's, it's night and day. But, but the, uh, to have someone of your peers that made it through or someone your own age, it gives them hope. When I quit crack, when I got, when I got set free of crack cocaine, which it, and my friends, all of them now have quit because I kind of blazed the trail showing them it could be done. You were there, when, home I, showed up the, when I showed up at the White House, um, I was at the White House. I was called there for a it was surreal. I go in there for the first time and it was a manufacturing summit that the president had. And I sat down and I go, who's sitting here? He said, the president is. So I show up on national TV sitting next to the president and all my friends I used to spend all the time in the crack house going, what is he doing on TV with the president of the United States? Jesus must be real because this is impossible. Which brings up my next point I want to say. You know, my book, it says, what are the odds from crack addict to CEO? I want everybody out there, you look in your own life and you see a one in a million or a one in a billion happen, or you say, wow, this is impossible that this happened. When, you, when are you going to add them together and say, this is a miracle and call it what it is? Because it can't, you can't give, you know, people are looking for hope. And, and when people are looking for hope, if something bad has to happen, something, something has to be, you know, happen like this pandemic, you know, everyone's looking for hope. And if you add that with addiction, you couple, couple that with addiction, and that's where you can really reach out to people and have the biggest revival in history. Mike, I just got the cue that we are out of time. And I just want to say it's been an immense pleasure having you on the show today. I, I appreciate you very much. Well, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. The Sean Prue Show, over and out for another week. You can hear us on the SiriusXM app anytime or visit the podcast over at SeanPrue.com where you can sign up for the Thought Revolution newsletter while you're there. Until next week, I wish you peace and love. Oh my rebel